Today on the Almond Journey podcast. The three major components of science is physics, biology, and chemistry. It's like a three-legged stool. You have to have all three of those components to put together a successful fertility program. We're talking soil science and crop fertility with farmer turned crop consultant, Bill Brush. the Almond Journey podcast brought to you by the Almond Board of California. On this show, we discover how growers, handlers, and other stakeholders are making things work for their operations to drive the almond industry forward. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich, and I get to travel up and down the valley, virtually in this case, to feature the leaders who are finding innovative ways to improve their operations, connect with their local communities, and advance this almond industry. Today, we head west of Modesto, almost to the San Joaquin River, to speak with Bill Brush. Bill's family has been farming some of that same ground there since 1854, and they currently grow almonds, walnuts, and a few pecans. In addition to being a lifetime farmer himself, Bill worked for a fertilizer chemical and seed company for about 21 years and served as both a board member and alternate for the Almond Board of California for 12 years. In the 90s, Bill said he became really interested in learning more about soil, and that led him to becoming a full-time independent consultant focused on helping growers with soil, water, and plant health. This is really a great episode for anyone who wants to know a little bit more about the science of what's happening beneath the soil surface and what can be done to continue to build soil structure, biology, and water holding capacity over time. First, Bill's going to take us back to what opened his eyes to the importance of this work and what he says changed the course of his career. Well, I had about, um, well, not at that time, but ultimately it ended up being about 21 years with a a fertilizer, ag chem, and seed company, a co-op here in, in around Modesto. And I had worked for them for quite a while, and they brought out a a fertility specialist uh, by the name of Neil Kinsey. He's back in from Charleston, Missouri. Now he's became my mentor and also a really close personal friend. And like a lot of stories, it all starts with, I met a guy. And I met a guy, Neil, and he changed essentially my life and my life's work from that day forward. I finally found out that you could actually measure and fix and help people not only myself as a farmer, but others with the ability to understand how soils work. And I've worked from that day forward to what I've done. Now, I've worked several years, uh, the last three or four with my, uh, the co-op being away from my primary job, which was the operations manager down to a a soil consultant calling on uh, a lot of different farmers in the area and outside the area. And then I finally decided if I really was going to do this seriously, I need to do it 100% of the time that I had. So I uh, retired from that job and began independently on my own as, like I say, as a soil consultant fertility guy. And along the way, I learned a lot of things that I didn't have uh, the knowledge of, which was water and how water works. And so from that day forward, I started reading everything I could. I had a really good science background with chemistry, physics a little bit of uh, genetics, all kinds of uh, things that I had from my basic Bachelor of Science degree from UC Davis, and then just started to build off of that. And with that, uh, became my own, uh, my own brand, so to speak, of what I do. And with that, I've worked 
almost any crop you can think of, I probably worked on it at some time or another. Hmm. And and what was that paradigm shift for you? You know, what what how did you look at soil before? And you said kind of your life changed when you uh, is is his name Neil? Is that right? Yeah, Neil Kinsey. Yeah, uh, yeah when you met Neil, so you, you your whole perspective changed. What? How did you see things before, and how did you see things differently after? Well, you kind of looked at your crop and say, "Well, I got to throw out some some nitrogen, or this crop needs more potassium." No real measurement skills. Just okay, I'll put some out. Are you short of these nutrients? Well, I don't know until you see deficiency symptoms. We really looked at how you measure and how you increase the efficiency of all nutrients by getting the physical structure of your soil right. And that really becomes the key. You know, I, I work hard to, to get the physical structure of the soil right because then that leads to better efficiency of nitrogen, which allows less leaching into the groundwater. It's beneficial for the farmer. He can get the right amount of nutrients. It's beneficial for people. And it's beneficial ultimately to the earth. And that, that's what we look at as being stewards that understand how to make soils work better. And uh, that's, that's what I became. And what's always intrigued me is there is no language. There is no nationality to soils. It's, it's the same worldwide. You just need to get the proper measurements and understanding how those measurements are taken and how those measurements, and then once you get them, what it takes to fix them. And there's math to it, there's science to it, there's biology, there's physics. It's just the three major components of science is physics, biology, and chemistry. And pretty much, maybe not all, but pretty much all the rest of the sciences filter off of that, you know. And so all three components of that, it's like a three-legged stool. You have to have all three of those components to put together a successful fertility program because they work in concert. One of the things before I, I go a little bit farther, Neil Kinsey was just the messenger of relaying a lot of work that was done at the University of Missouri at Columbia by the work of Dr. William Albrecht, fantastic soil scientist way before his time, that did a lot of work on understanding soils and how soils work. And uh, I won't go into a lot of that. It's really interesting the way he was able to take a lot of information and put that into a format so that you could fix all soils. But you start with soils with the first thing. You can't fix anything you can't measure, you know. So the first thing, it starts with measurement. Well, we make a lot of decisions based on those, what we find in those soil samples. So first, we need to get an accurate soil sample taken a certain way, which is randomly throughout the field, and then taking that and putting it all together and testing that and getting back numbers on all the different nutrients. Now, you mentioned, you know, starting off with getting the proper measurements. Can you talk us through what, you know, if you're going to start working with somebody, what are those proper measurements? One easy thing about soils, is, you know, if you ever look at a chemistry chart, there's uh, maybe a couple hundred elements in the world. And we really only need to worry about 19 or 20 of them. And that makes it somewhat easier. But uh, that's what we get from the soil sample is we, we get the proper amount of, of calcium, magnesium potassium and sodium along with a pH. The most important thing is what we call the exchange capacity. Some will use a cation exchange capacity. Some will use a 
total exchange capacity. It's just a different format of how you put those together. But those two numbers or those two things, whether it's cation exchange or total exchange, lets you know how much clay you have in your soil. The reason that's important is this is a very simple physical part of this measurement is that opposites attract and likes repel. And the soil itself, when you take clay and break it down to its smallest component, it's negatively charged, which means it drags positively charged or cations to it because soil by itself, that clay particle is an anion, which is negatively charged. So anything that's negatively charged is going to be repelled from it, which in essence then leaches, goes through the soil because it can't be held there. So as water moves through, nutrients move through that are negatively charged. So what would be a good case of that? Well, something you would like to hold on to but can't once it's negatively charged would be nitrate. NO3 is negatively charged, can't be held on the soil colloid. So therefore, it's going to leach through your soil as water. It's going to flow with the water. You know, sulfate's another essential nutrient, and it also, fortunately and unfortunately, leaches through your soil. Fortunately, because it can pull some negative components out with it, but ultimately you need that sulfate to basically as an essential crop nutrient. That's what we call base saturation. What's the percentages of the four major cations that are held on that soil? And those four major ones are calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium all necessary elements, but held at different levels to give your soil the proper physical structure. What is the proper physical structure? Everybody looks for, what's the ratio? Well, the ratio changes as that soil gets lighter or sandier, and as it gets heavier, it changes also. So we want most soils, and that, that's things from, you know, light sandier soils, but, but have some clay to it, somewhere around an exchange capacity, of an eight, which is fairly sandy, but still heavy enough to have some clay. Those need to be somewhere around 68% calcium and 12% magnesium. It gets a little bit heavier, we'll, we'll take a, even a little less magnesium, down to 10 or 11%, and push the calcium up to 69 or 70%. The next thing is, is that potassium and sodium are not as hardly charged. They're only positive of, of one positive charge, where a calcium and magnesium are both two positive charges. And those charges have more affinity for the clay than the ones that only have a single charge. Therefore, I like to say, since we're in football season now, uh, those two positively charged calcium and magnesium are like linemen. They dominate the situation. But we need those fast and fleet other uh, nutrients like potassium and sodium to a smaller extent on that soil college. So they have to work their way. But if they're going to fight one-on-one, they'll lose that battle with those big ones, calcium, magnesium. All of them, in addition to having a place on the soil colloid, have a lot of uh, importance in the plant growth. You know, and, and in addition to having plant growth, they compose in the right percentages, they give you the proper physical structure to allow, one, water to flow through and keep the mixture of air and water perfectly in the soil. You know, a perfect soil, and, and when you say this, everybody, a lot of people take it the wrong way, but by perfect, I mean the perfect soil is one that it's set in a way that the plants are able to, you know, get the most nutrients out of the soil. And they're able to get the most nutrients out of the soil 
because the one thing that most soil scientists don't go into is the things that really drive this whole equation are the things we don't see, which is the microbiology. And so we, if we get the proper amount of air and water, we have the proper condition for the microbiology to thrive in. Dr. Albrecht said is that what we're trying to do with our physical structure is build a house for the biology to thrive in. So in the meantime, we can put on things like a compost or even in some cases a manure at a lower rate and be able to utilize the nutrients that are held within those carbon bonds and get good utilization out of them. It's kind of the basics to starting with organics. Um, but what I find most a problem with organics and the way people want to practice them is they need to understand, again, I have a bank here that I've measured through a good soil sample. And I'm going to take a nutrient that everybody kind of has heard of at some point and thinks, you know, even though it's, it's necessity and planted and as big as a lot of the other ones, but zinc. My soil does not have enough zinc to maximize my production. And all of the thing, characteristics that zinc does for the plant uh, are minimized because I don't have enough zinc in the soil. You can put all the organics, you can put in all the cover crops you want, you can put in all of the right tilth, you can do all of these things, put on marvelous compost and manage the soil and the water perfectly, but you don't have any zinc in it, you still won't have any zinc in it. The microbes are not manufacturing. They are mineralizing agents. They mineralize soil, the nutrients that are in the soil for themselves. And then after they went through their process, multiplied and died, they released those uh, nutrients back to the plant. The one thing that's important to understand that any nutrient that's been through a plant or animal is much more biologically available to your plant. So obviously when this microbiology dies, it basically the nutrients that are held within their body becomes much more available to the plant. Most composts are made from some living tissue, like a lot of the ones you'll see are green compost where they'll have uh, leaves and uh, grass clippings and all those in there. And those carbon sources are molded into a compost and then they are more available. But ultimately, if you don't understand, if I don't have something, there is nothing that's going to put that nutrient back into the soil except if I apply it. Now, I need to find then, I need to either find a compost that has it or I need to find some commercial. And if I want to be an organic grower, then I have to find an organic source of zinc that I can apply to get that out. And question for you on that. So in your experience, are most growers doing adequate soil testing to actually know, you know, what, what they need? You know, when I, when I first started this, a lot of people would say, yeah, I soil sample. I said, well, how often do you soil sample? And they said, well, maybe every three years. And I said, so in that three years time, you've had how much rainfall? Oh, some places we've had 36 to, in some places, 60 inches of rainfall. Okay. That all had effect on your soil. Okay. So three years of that, you've got between 48 and 60 inches of rainfall that went through your soil. How much irrigation did you do? Oh, then we did so many inches of rain of water went through those soils. Okay, what was in the water? I don't know. I didn't test. Well, okay, that's going to have an effect. How much crop did you pull out? Oh, well, I pulled out, we'll just take a number, took out really good crops off my almonds, took out 3,000 pounds of almonds at acre. So you took out 9,000 pounds of almond, 
with no regard to how much I should put in to replace that and no measuring device to do that. And you did it over three years. I liken that to going into a doctor's office and saying, I don't feel very good. And he says, okay, let me look at what we, your, your blood tests and, and your x-rays look like three years ago. That'd be crazy. But yet here you are in a living organism trying to keep air and water in balance, trying to keep that porosity, trying to keep that soil chemistry where it needs to be. And you're going to do it every three years? It's very difficult at that point for people to argue that you shouldn't be soil sampling at least once a year. Uh, you can do it to death. I, I mean, you start to get overcome like trying to soil sample more than once a year. But I like to soil sample at the end of when the crop is made and its demand for nutrients is not very much. And we've had the effects of all year of the water that you apply and also have the quality of the water it was at the end of the year. And we put that all into a stew. We take those soil samples and say, that's the worst, should be the worst or the least we have. So right after harvest, we can come back in there and mend those soils if needed or pry those nutrients that are taken. Everybody understands the bank account, so to speak. You know, our soils are a bank account. Well, that bank account is getting used every single day that plant is growing actively. That means we're removing nutrients, whether it be nitrogen, whether it be phosphorus, potassium. And some of those nutrients, you know, in the case of almonds, we're talking about the almond journey. Those nutrients, when they go, they go. They don't come back to the farm. So you, you take a shell, a nut, and a hull, and sticks, and they all leave the farm. And they all have nutrients contained within them. And those have all been removed from where? The soil. And the bank of nutrients that we build in that soil. So if we don't at least replace those, we know we're going backwards, okay? And so when we look at soils, we're doing two things. We're building long-term soil health and its ability to, to mineralize and produce nutrients, but then we're also having to add back those nutrients that are being removed naturally as the crop is harvested and removed from, from your ranch. So all of these put together is what you build, what I call a fertility program. And it's water and soil management that puts that all together that allows you to be the most productive in the soils that you have. Wow. And, it, and for you, Bill, what's most common that a grower will experience when they come to you? If, if you are getting contacted by a new almond grower, you know, what are the most common issues that they're seeing or that they're experiencing that they're like, look, I need to get a, a consultant who understands soil to come help me? Well, we have to look at, you know, this has always been amusing to me, and it's, it's been basically the same wherever I've went. And that's not just here in California on almonds and walnuts and the other crops I've consulted here, but also around the world. You take, for the first time, you go out, a guy has called you up, you go to his ranch, go out to look at his, his orchard or his field, and he is looking where? If it's a tree crop, he's looking up into the air. Why is that? Because that's where the crop is. That's where he realizes that's where the income comes from. So I'm most concerned about that. And I have to change that thinking to say, why don't you look down on the floor here for a while? Because that's where all those nutrients that makes that crop came from. And if we can't get enough to go up this plant and satisfy that reproductive desire of that plant, we're not going to have the crop we had. So I have his attention because what we want to do is maximize production. Because the first rule of sustainability, if the farmer can't make a profit, he's not sustainable, let alone the sustainability of the program. So we need to make sure that we're looking at th doing things that not only 
are good for the soil. They're good for the farmer because the farmer can become more profitable. And as he becomes more profitable, he is definitely willing to invest more into a program that's going to to increase his profitability and also increases the, the ability of the soil to just do better than he expected. Most people are are trying to give me soils that they think that they know exactly uh, what to do on their good soils, but this is a bad soil. So we need somebody particular. What I've tried to show people is I can do just as much good on your best soils. Once I have the have the information, you may have it by whatever reasons or means, you have a perfect soil in terms of you have the right amount of, of all the nutrients. You've got good balance of calcium, magnesium, and potassium, and sodium. You have all the micronutrients you need. You have plenty of phosphate, all of these things, and you're growing fabulous crops. So you don't think you can do any better. Occasionally, that's the case. But occasionally, I will be able to show them that even on those soils that you think are doing really well, we make a few changes and we even get a better result. I don't know everything. I don't profess to know everything. I know what I've learned over the last 20 to 25 years, and those are the basics that I know when applied work. If they don't work, then I'm very interested in what's there because there is a condition maybe I haven't experienced or maybe I'm not recognizing. But if I get that soil balanced and I take care of water the way that water should be to maximize its potential and not maximize its detrimental components, then I'm going to have the best I can grow on that soil. And that's what I've done over the, the 20 to 25 years. And it's my intent now to, to utilize what I've learned over those years to help growers, not only here, but anywhere that, that wants to listen to, to what I know to be the truth of how to, grow, how to grow crops and how to be more successful that you're doing by making sure you're getting back to the, to the Albrecht and Kinsey principles that I've learned. Doesn't mean that's the only thing, but it means that if you don't go back to the principles of what those nutrients are, what they need to be, how that soil needs to work, and how to irrigate, meaning always keeping a nice mixture of air and water to maximize nutrient uptake and amount of air to keep the microbial activity going. Those are the things that long-term are going to give you the greatest result. Right. And if, you know, if I'm a grower and uh, I'm doing my soil test, so I know, I know what I need to apply, but I want more of that microbial activity because I want more of that mineralization and, and have more of those nutrients available to my crop. What sorts of things do I need to be doing other than, you know, applying compost, which you already mentioned? Because at the top, you mentioned you need to have the structure where those microbes can live. Um, so what do I do to get that structure and how do I build that microbial community over time in my orchard? Yeah. The good thing for us is in, in, in farming, we've tried for years to do a lot of bad things to soil. We didn't know we were doing them. Obviously, anybody thought they were doing something that was bad would stop doing it. But we we're doing a lot of things in terms of equipment that cause compaction, which is taking air out of the soil, which then uh, diminishes the ability of, of that air and water. As I started to say before, and I forgot, a perfect soil, when you look at that, is 45% mineral. You know, clay, sand, silt, all of those components that make up the mineral fraction. 45%. Can't change that. 5% organic matter. When I say organic matter, it's strictly soil humus. 25% air and 25% water. Okay, that's not a perfect soil, but that's the perfect conditions that plants utilize the nutrients to their maximum because that's where the microbiology thrives. 
they need water too, as well as air. So as your soil dries out, you get more air and less water. As you irrigate, you put more water and less air. So the key, and it's been the success of the industry and, and all farming to understand whether back in the Midwest, it's using pivots that basically can sprinkle irrigate and give you this constant a lot more time when you're closer to that 25% mixture of air and water. In California, where we do a lot of irrigation with microsprinklers, drip, what we're doing is maximizing the time that we're staying in that 25% air, 25% water. Because the mineral fraction and the, and the uh, uh, organic matter of soil humus don't really change much. Okay. So, so what we do then is, is that we try to overcome some of the things that we've done over time. You have an orchard that's been out here a long time. What do you want to do? Well, we want to open up that soil. And so uh, we found a lot of things in terms of like cover crops. Uh, some of those roots are very aggressive, you know, and they will pound through some compaction that say maybe your ametry won't. And so you have a better opportunity to get nutrients and get air down into the soil to get those nutrients available. Uh, cover crops when they're worked down can also come back and give you some more what we call soil tilt, or basically what we're looking at in, in the soil tilt is to give it more body, more carbon material for microbes to flourish. So you're giving it more airspace and you're giving it more carbon material. It's no different, I mean, for the plant, it kind of gets its carbon for free, okay? Because it, it basically takes carbon dioxide out of the air through its leaf surface. Wow, this is great, Bill. Thank you so much for the time. Uh, before I let you go, just one more question. You know, if you could have just one, you know, just one takeaway for a every almond grower in the state. Of course, we don't have every almond grower that's listening to this quite yet, but we're working on it. Uh, if you could have just one takeaway for every almond grower in the state, what would that be? I don't know if I could sum it up in one. The first would be I've always worked off of a knowledge-based and a science-based approach. And, and this, the constant thing I look at is if it's science, it's repeatable. And in this day and age, if it's science, it will be sustainable if you understand how to make that science work best for you. So you need to look at your program with a critical eye because there are better crops out there. There are soils that are in better condition fertility-wise. There is better quality waters in several places. All I can do in my area is look at the inputs, which is what I place on the soil, what my soil has as an audit when I take it, what is there and what is missing, and what is my water and what can I do to my water to make it the most efficient. And you can't do the water without the soil, and you can't do the soil without the water. They're a combination of both of those elements to basically grow a crop. And uh, I always like to say, you know, we have the fertility perfect. You know, everything, I've, I've got this mat, I mean, to the square inch, everything is perfect. And I never turn the water on, not going to be very successful. And vice versa. My water's perfect. And I don't have anything right here so that that soil will accept that perfect water and maximize my microbiology let it flourish, let it deliver those nutrients the way it was intended to deliver them to. So what you have to look at is both components, nothing else. Those of you that don't have a soil sample, go get one. Those of you that don't have a water sample, go get one. I've told people this where they've used water from the district. We'll say here in, in my area, it's Turlock or Modesto Irrigation District right around me here. 
You know, and that water comes from the Sierras, which is all snow runoff, right? So we have really, really good water, right? Well, in some cases it's a little too good, meaning it's a little bit stripping because it's not mineralized very well. It's just the pure H2O will strip out nutrients out of your soil. So you need to understand you, it's nice to put a beneficial salt in that. You can put a little bit of solution gypsum or some other cation that goes in there that basically gives it some body so that basically the addition to penetrating infiltrates. So penetration is up and down, infiltration is side to side. So we want it to move out and flow sideways as well as going down and not take away some of the nutrients we have there. But that water, as it comes across the valley, all of a sudden we lose volume to evaporation. So the next thing we do is what? We have to add some water back in, and that's usually from well water, pump water, to increase the volume so that by the time we get to the end of the canal, we've added that water back in. That's not pure water anymore. So if we're not measuring our water, even what you consider to be pure water, how do you know it is until you test? And again, you can't fix what you can't measure. And, and, and if, if Amagoras could just look at that, what are the inputs, the major ones? I have my soil, I have my dirt, as we like to say it. And then what is in that dirt? And how do I maximize its potential based off of what the water will allow me to do and not do? And one last thing, if that soil is sandy enough and it can't hold enough nutrients, the only way I can farm it successfully and do as well as heavier soils, I got to add those nutrients back in almost every irrigation. And there's lots to be considered. I, I can't tell you everything I know in, in a half an hour. Uh, but I, if I got you to thinking about just those two items, getting a proper soil audit, getting a proper water test to understand those two components, what I'm missing and what the water is effectively doing to me, I'm going to be way better off for it. And then have a good consultant that come in and tell you those things that you can do the best fit your soil. Well, thank you very much to Bill Brush for taking the time to be on the show today. Such a wealth of knowledge about some of the most important fundamental aspects of growing almonds or really any crop. Bill mentioned one way to build that critical soil structure in biology is by planting cover crops. And an increasing number of California almond growers are doing just that, which is the focus of today's ABC Update. For several years now, the Almond Board of California has supported the Seeds for Bees program, which provides free seed to growers who want to try cover crops in their first or second year. Almond Board Chief Scientific Officer Josette Lewis says an increasing number of growers are seeing the benefits for their soils, their pollinators, and their bottom line. For a lot of growers, soil health is kind of an ambiguous term, maybe it sounds a little wishy-washy, but really our focus is on the role that cover crops can play in solving soil quality problems in the orchard. So that might be compaction, which impacts water infiltration. And at a time when water is either very expensive or very limited, it's really important to improve infiltration. Also can help with nutrient cycling. So getting the most out of that fertilizer that you apply in the orchard by helping stimulate some of the bacteria and microorganisms that live in the soil and are critical to the cycling of those nutrients. It also plays a role in uh, pollinator health. The honeybees that every grower brings into the orchard are a pretty expensive part of growing almonds. 
And research shows that having a blooming cover crop around the time of almond pollination can improve bee health. And that could be a benefit in terms of your bottom line. There's evidence from surveys that beekeepers are more interested in working with growers and might even give a little bit of a a better price to growers who have blooming cover crop in their orchard because they know that that's good for their bees. Or it helps you get to the best beekeepers who bring the best hives. So, you know, you're getting the best input into your the start of your growing season. So really that dual benefit of improving soil quality and then that secondary benefit for pollinator health. Participants have already received their cover crop seed from Seeds for Bees for this 2022-2023 season. And Josette says the growth of the program speaks volumes about the value of cover crops. More growers are taking advantage of not only the free seed, but also the great technical assistance. This program was custom designed for almonds, so it's the best place to dip your toe in the water of cover crops, even though there's other options available as well. But since 2020, 2021 growing season, we've almost doubled the amount of cover crop acreage that is participating in the Seeds for Bees program. So we're at almost 100,000 acres of almond orchards that have the specific Seeds for Bees cover crop. And the total acreage was likely to be higher than that because this is just one, although very great way for growers to access cover crop seed. One can go to USDA NRCS maintains a cover crop seed program out of Lockwood. There are commercial providers of of cover crop seed. So great resources that go above and beyond, but 100,000 acres of almond orchards just through this one program is a great sign that growers are seeing a benefit. And I just really stress something that I learned from Seeds for Bees, which is over 90% of growers who have participated in the program for one or two years state that they will plan to continue the use of cover crops. So it's a sign that they do see a return on investment. They see a benefit to their soil quality, even within the first two years. If you have any questions at all about cover crops, the Almond Board has published a comprehensive guide, which you can access right now, if you'd like, over at almonds.com forward slash cover crops. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. There's a lot of incentives available, not only from Seeds for Bees, but also from CDFA's Healthy Soils Program, NRCS, Equip, and CRP programs. Information on all of those can be found in one easy to access place at almonds.com forward slash incentives. So that's almonds.com forward slash cover crops for the guide and forward slash incentives for those incentive programs. Again, all of those links will be in the show notes. One other opportunity to learn more is by attending an in-person soil summit. The first one was a huge success for the Almond Board this past year, and the second one is already on the calendar for 2023. So we had the first one up in Chico, kind of focused on the Sacramento Valley, where clearly there's a little more moisture and makes it a little easier to think about a cover crop. But we hear a lot from growers in the San Joaquin Valley as well. So we will be holding a second soil summit on June 13th at the Tulare Ag Center and encourage everyone to stay tuned to get more information on that second soil summit, more focused on the San Joaquin Valley. So mark your calendars now for June 13th at the Tulare Ag Center and stay tuned for more details on the upcoming soil summit. In the meantime, be sure to check out the cover crop guide and the incentives resource on almonds.com. 
We here at the Almond Journey podcast believe everyone in the almond industry has a story of their own of how they're making things work on their farms or in their jobs. Hearing the voices of industry leaders, people like Bill Brush, may have sparked a connection or an idea that you can use in your own journey. And that's why we want to feature these stories of innovation, resilience, and community here on this podcast. I hope you'll come along for the ride by subscribing to the show on your podcast platform of choice. And please pass it along to at least one other person in the industry so we can all share in this almond journey together.